0: To another episode of Cut the Shit and Get Fit. I am your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and today we are joined by the legend, Lou Schuler. Say hello. Hello. Perfect. So let's jump right into it, and if you could tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into the industry?
1: Who am I? Yeah. So we got we to start with a really tough question, huh? Yes, definitely. Well, um, yeah, I, I'm... A, I'm, I'm probably older than most of the people listening to this. I turned 60 in a, in a couple weeks. I've been writing about fitness for about 25 years, uh, since 1992, when I started working at Men's Fitness Magazine. I worked there six years, finishing up as fitness editor. I went to Men's Health Magazine, worked there for six years as uh, fitness editor and fitness director. Um, I left Men's Health in 2004, and I've been freelance ever since. Mostly, I work with them, but I've worked with I don't know how many magazines, websites since then. I I couldn't even tell you how many books I've written. I guess I'm best known for writing the six books in the New Rules of Lifting series with Alan Cosgrove. Um, The New Rules of Lifting for Women is by far um, the the most influential, best-selling, most popular book in that series. Um, How did I get into the industry? I just, you know, I answered a blind ad in a newspaper. I was a dead, dead broke Grad student in Los Angeles. I was studying creative writing at USC. Um, and I was, you know, I couldn't get a job waiting tables or tending bar. And, you know, I had this whole background in journalism, going back to journalism school in the late 1970s. And I just answered a blind ad in the Los Angeles Times. I'd never heard of Men's Fitness magazine, got an interview there. They, you know, got some part time work. I actually started as a part-time copy editor at Muscle and Fitness Magazine, which was quite a culture shock. I'd always worked out, but I'd never been around the bodybuilding world in any, in any serious way. Never read a Muscle Magazine um, you know, before I was editing copy for them. So uh, that's how I got into it. And 25 years later, I'm still doing it.
0: So did you have to like research quite a bit to kind of learn about the bodybuilding world so you didn't just sound like some random dude writing about fitness?
1: Well, I, they didn't let me write about fitness at first. I was just okay. editing the articles that were coming in. And, yes, I came off like a – I'm sure I came off like a complete idiot at times. <laughs> and it's to the everlasting credit of the people who were on staff there that they really gave me a chance because they, you know, you had a couple – they had a few people who were legit bodybuilders, um, experts. There was a, the editor-in-chief was a, was a chiropractor, a former bodybuilder very close to the bodybuilding world. the um, They had a, a science editor, I think was his title, who had a PhD, been um, director of, I think he'd been like director of conditioning for the U.S. Army at one point, uh, also a bodybuilding background, and they had other bodybuilders on staff. So there were people there who knew that part of the business. And I certainly knew writing and editing in a way that, you know, it was like it was it was it was a, a useful collaboration right from the beginning. They treated me extremely well, and sort of let me learn it at my own pace. I wrote very little for either Men's Fitness or Muscle and Fitness for probably four or five months. Then I got on full time at Men's Fitness, starting as a copy editor and and, and fact checker. And again, they let me work my way up, writing articles where I could make a useful contribution, learning fitness, you know, learning fitness, nutrition, health, and not just learning those things, but learning how to write about them in a way that would actually help people use the information and improve whatever they you know whatever the the article was explaining how to improve. So I was able to get into this. In a really kind of, I hate to use the word organic, and it certainly wasn't a word we used back in the nineteen nineties. But it was it was a way to get in there where I was welcomed because of my skills, and eventually I became valuable because of what I learned as I was applying my skills to these products they had, and it helped that Men's Fitness magazine was uh, taking off at that time. I think we I think we doubled our circulation in the time I was there, which had nothing to do with me and everything to do with the fact that all of a sudden people were interested in this topic and they were, and thanks to Men's Health and Shape, uh, magazines like that, they were realizing, hey, I can go to the newsstand and I can, you know, pick up a magazine that's going to tell me how to do all this stuff better. So there was tremendous interest in the topic. All fitness magazines were doing well. Advertisers were discovering this whole new, you know, this whole new field. So car advertisers and, you know, fragrance advertisers and even fashion advertisers were starting to get into that space which gave all the magazines money to work with so you know you know we're going back a, a long time in that all those trends are reversed right now with all the advertising going online and magazines really struggling to figure out how they still fit into um, you know into their readers lives but back then it was a new thing and I got in on the ground floor which was uh, just a pure stroke of luck I had the right skills and the right interest, uh, exactly at the moment and in the place where they were needed.
0: I'm always kind of curious with like magazines now, like especially in our day and age. Like, do you think eventually magazines will just go completely online and just scrap the whole actual like physical copy?
1: I that would be my guess. My, you know, all the way back when I was in journalism school in the in the 1970s. And, uh, how, how old are you? Uh, 25, 25. So you were born in 91, 90, 91, 92, 91. Yeah. Okay. So you were born in 91. So, and again, it was in late 1991. You know, that's when I was in grad school. That's when I was in my early thirties and, and just, you know, applying for, uh, jobs like the ones I just described. Uh, I was in I had a whole other life before that going back to the late 1970s and back then um cable television barely existed. We had, you know, essentially you had three networks and you had PBS and you had some independent stations that that ran I love Lucy reruns and you know old monster movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's what TV was. Uh, Radio, You just you know, you had FM, which was playing, uh, you know, which was playing rock music and you had AM radio, which was playing top 40 music and maybe a little bit of news and public affairs stuff. That was the media. And then every city had a morning newspaper and an evening newspaper and big cities might have three or four daily newspapers. And then you had weekly news magazines, monthly news magazines, all that sort of thing. But everybody was going for the broadest possible audience. So everybody was kind of targeting middle America and middle American sensibilities. But even back in the 1970s, they were telling us in journalism school, uh, there was this new term called narrowcasting, which it said instead of TV broadcasting, they're going to start narrowcasting, which means that you're going to have a lot more channels and a lot more shows, and they're going to be focusing on more and more specific interests. And we were told that was going to apply to publishing as well. Publishing was going to be, you know, back then there were there were niche magazines like Guns and Ammo, and you know, automobile magazines, and pet lover magazines, and women's magazines, and men's magazines, and all those things, fashion. But the idea that Life and Time and Newsweek would eventually just, you know, pr- either go away completely or fade way into the background and not be part of our Conversation anymore, not be in everybody's home the way they were back then, uh, that there would be all these special interest magazines. I was always prepared for that. And when I got into the fitness niche, I realized. Hey this is what we were talking about back in journalism school so it's just like cable TV with all these specialized channels that are now exploding now publishing's doing this same thing and of course this is still a few years before the internet which I know is blow your mind because I'm sure you don't remember a time when there wasn't an internet you probably had your own email account when you were like three right? <laughs> yeah so. Yeah, right. So um, and you never saw a TV without a remote control, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you never turned on AM radio without hearing somebody screaming about, you know, something or other. And, you know, how they're everyone's trying to destroy America. So you probably can't even imagine a world where those things didn't exist. But that's a world I grew up in. But I was prepared in different, you know, to, to some extent for most of these things that happened. So when they happened, I was like, great, I know what I'm doing here. This makes sense. This is a good niche I, I really enjoyed. I you know, had always been interested, as long as I can remember, been interested in in health and fitness and training for specific sports and uh, to, to a lesser extent with nutrition um, because I was always a skinny guy. So I never had, you know, to me, weight control was just trying to eat more food than I actually was hungry for so I could gain weight and put on muscle. Started working out when I was 13, which was a very unusual thing to do in 1970. So I was prepared for all these things. And then, when publishing started to go south, and all of a sudden all the audiences were online, and people didn't want to read long articles anymore, and everything that I thought I knew about publishing was being overturned, I realized okay, somehow I started off ahead of the curve, and I somehow got behind the curve. and now I don't think anybody, at least nobody I've ever talked to in publishing, knows exactly what they're going to do. But when we talk about these transitions, they never happen all at once. You know, uh, um, probably seven, eight years ago, let me see, excuse me, The um, Amazon introduced the Kindle, I believe, in right before Christmas, like 2007, and by then I was already – you know, publishing books—the original *New Rules of Lifting* had already come out. *Book of Muscle*, *Home Workout Bible*, books like that—you couldn't imagine them as eBooks. You know, they had mm-hmm. to be a printed book. They had to be these big doorstop books with all this information and all these pictures and all these charts. And we never thought, at the time the Kindle came out, even when we knew what it was, we never thought, okay, there's going to be a time when people are going to want to read fitness books. On these tiny little, you know four inch by six inch or seven inch screens. But it was actually worse than that. Not only did we not see that, we didn't see that people were going to be want to read would want to read fitness books on a damn telephone the size of like two or three credit cards. Yeah. How in the world do you completely re-engineer your concept of how to share the information that I specialize in, which is which is fitness information and nutrition information, How do you condense all that so that it fits on screens that small? That's a real trick. And I I, I still don't know the answers. Um, We don't get as many complaints anymore because I think readers kind of understand that some of these charts aren't going to look, uh, aren't going to be legible in that small format. So what I did was, uh, well, a friend of mine uh, did this. We've got a a site called workit.com, W-E-R-K-I-T.com and uh, my friend Aoife Hammersmith and her husband Otto have that site and Aoife produced training logs for all my books so that readers who have bought the books can go and download the training log for free for that book and they can see exactly what every workout is supposed to look like on one piece of paper. So that was one way to deal with to deal with the small screen problem and the fact people couldn't read our charts, now they can, they can read the charts because they can download these these uh workout logs for free the problem of magazines well there's there's really two problems one is that magazines are an incredible vehicle for advertisers right so let's say you go and you pick up the latest issue of vanity fair and you're flipping through and you're seeing all these beautiful pictures that some advertising agency and and some you know a a jeweler or, or 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 a or a Fashion, uh, you know, a a fashion house or or a car company, somebody produced these ads for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. I don't even know what the economics of that are, specifically to look good in a magazine and in specific magazines that target affluent, generally urban, suburban people, people who uh, have aspirations of being even more affluent and of being movers and shakers in their world, and of traveling, and of having all these great things, and of having all these, you know, uh, of, of knowing all these really cool people who are featured in the pages of these magazines. So there is, magazines remain a vehicle that can't be replaced, because nobody is, a, a little ad on the side of a website um, that uh, is right above all those clickbait headlines like you know um, Sharon Stone grows three heads. that's why you haven't seen her in a movie for fifteen years, you know yeah. so so you got all the you got all the clickbait over there and what some like fashion house or or some you know somebody who's producing like twenty thousand dollar watches or fifty thousand dollar SUVs they are going to want to advertise next to that. no of course they're not, but their perfect vehicle is this magazine that readers are less inclined to want to pick up. I think readers, I think all of us, I, I still like having magazines around. I like the feel of a magazine, but I would rather read an article online because you know I'd rather have like, the links and references within, within that article. But, yeah. um, you know, so right now nobody knows. The advertisers don't know where they can go to advertise their products if people stop reading magazines altogether. Magazine publishers, I guarantee, do not know how to manage the economics of an online-only world. So I think everybody's kind of hoping that these things just stay in suspended animation. For example, people still like to read print books. Um, magazines, like for example, Men's Health, still circulate still circulate well over one and a half million copies a month. That's not nothing. You know, there there's a there's a that's a that's still a big business. Question is, everyone knows the business is shrinking and how far does it have to shrink before it's no longer a big business and nobody knows that. the answer to that. Yeah, like I don't remember the last
0: time I bought myself a fitness magazine but for like a fitness book, I'll I actually like a physical copy. Like I'm just old school. I like to have the book. I like to have it in my bookshelf and if I need to reference back to it, I can go and pick it up. Whereas like a Kindle, I've tried it before and I'm like, ah, it's not my thing. But when you look at this new generation coming up, they're constantly on their phones. Right. And, you know, the thought of, hey, I need to go to a store and pick up a magazine to look up a workout that I want is most likely not going to happen. They'll probably go on Teen Nation and flip through and find it within 30 seconds and
1: they're off. Sure. And there's a consequence to that which is that online information is not organized. Yeah. So if somebody's looking for fitness information online, they're going to be confronted with, well, first off, of course, they're going to be confronted with just an absolutely bewildering array of choices. And they will have no idea which of those choices are for them and which aren't because every single article online is presented as this is the ultimate, this is the best ever, this is going to give you ripped abs, this is going to make you shredded, and it's also going to make you huge, and it's also going to make you healthy, and it's going to make you fast, and you're going to be an athlete, and you're going to look better, and you're going to feel better. And anybody who has been... Anybody anybody who's worked out for a few years, anybody who's, who's trained clients, anybody with some institutional knowledge um, of of fitness and how training works and how progressions work. They know that there's no workout that can provide all those things. An absolute beginner, sure, they're going to get a bunch of those benefits all at once. But that absolute beginner is not going to get shredded, and he's not going to get huge, and he's not going to get you know develop all this super strength or become a great athlete. He's just going to get better at a lot of things probably simultaneously. So there's no There's no delineation between this is a really advanced workout for somebody who is at this level and needs this to complete this process, as opposed to this article is for somebody who's beginning the process. This article is for somebody who's like stuck in a rut and they're frustrated and they're not quite sure what to do next. Because every article has to be presented as this is the greatest thing for everybody which can't possibly be true, but it's sort of what the uh, business model demands right now.
0: Yeah, it's kind of frustrating because like you can get like a client that you've trained for years and you give them all the right information and then they come back to you and be like, hey, I just searched up online last night that there's this new cleanse that's going to let me drop off all my fat and have a shredded six-pack. What do you think? And I'm like, oh my God, seriously? <laughs>
1: Right. So you, so you spend 30 seconds online and you find five articles explaining why cleanses are nonsense. And then that person will ignore it because he really wants to believe in the magic and he'll go off and he'll lose his, you know, 20 pounds. And, you know, it's like three quarters of it or half, you know, whatever it is, half of its water and, you know, half of its muscle and there's a little bit of fat. And, he, he then doesn't blame the cleanse for not working when he regains, you know, when, when his cells fill up with all the water that's drained out and when, you know, he regains weight and ends up with a higher body fat percentage because now he's lost some lean mass. So, uh, so what comes on to replace it is more likely to be fat tissue. He's not going to blame the cleanse for that. He's probably going to blame the trainer for that. Mm-hmm. So, so we're in a no-win situation. We live in a world of bullshit. And the kind of information that sincere, intelligent, well-informed people want to put out there really doesn't stand a chance against bullshit. So we're all sort of trying to target the same audience that is uh, less susceptible to bullshit and, and maybe has been deceived in the past and actually wants the serious information and can discriminate Uh, between absolute nonsense and something that that, that's actually plausible. So we're all chasing that same minority of the audience that's out there. And there aren't enough, there's too many of us and there aren't enough of them. So, um, you know, it's it's, it's, it's a real dilemma.
0: Why do you think people always fall victim to like, you know, finding a new diet online, especially right now for like the New Year's resolution, and they think this is it, this is like their solution for everything that went wrong in the past 10 years
1: of them trying to lose weight? Boy, you know, okay, so let's say that you could transport yourself back in time a few thousand years. And you go wandering around and you find clans here or tribes there. Where do they go for information? They're passing it on from the elders to the younger people. And then you've got the shaman or the medicine man or the local apothecary or or whatever, whatever the word would be in that culture who probably has crazy ideas But they don't have access to any other information. So this is what they have. You've got this experiential information that's passed down from grandparents to parents to children and and on down for who knows how many generations. This is the best hunting trail. Don't pick that. You know, don't eat that berry, but this one over here is okay. You know, that mushroom will, you know, will will make you see multiple gods. And this mushroom over here will kill you. And this mushroom over here is really good on a salad, except people back then didn't eat salad. So that doesn't make any (laughs) sense. So so you would find that people are susceptible to absolute nonsense because there's nothing else to choose from. What happens if you take essentially that same biology in terms of the brain and you put that down in the 21st century where all of a sudden there is... More information than all you know than you had in all of human history until recently. The brain that couldn't tell that the medicine man was full of shit. How in the world are they going to tell that what's on Doctor Oz is, full, is 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 nonsense or you know or or you know the anti-vaccination stuff? How are they supposed to know? Because it all sounds the same to them unless you have specific training in in some discipline. Everything looks plausible. Marketers are so good, just like old-time medicine men were so good at presenting themselves as the absolute authority on this subject. People uh, online right now, you can take uh, complete crap, you can take fake news, and you can make it look like the New England Journal of Medicine or the New York Times. You know, of course, actual people who read the New England Journal of Medicine or the New York Times would understand the difference – but somebody who doesn't read those you know, publications at that level, to them, it's all the same. And in that case, what you do is you end up defaulting to, well, this one says something I want to hear. I want to hear that this cleanse is going to help me lose 20 pounds in two weeks because I want to lose 20 pounds in two weeks, so I want to believe this works. So we go back to this human instinct to make a leap of faith and believe something that sounds like something that would be really good if true. So we want to believe it and we're going to believe it. And almost no matter how many times it's proved false, we will double down and find reasons to keep justifying it because it's still something we want to believe, even if we've never found proof that this thing actually works that way.
0: Yeah, it's tough now. Like you can go through your Facebook feed and someone can post a video that, Hey, these three foods are going to make you lose fat this, um, January. And you're like, Oh, that, that must be it. And there's no reference to like, if there's any studies done or where they got this information from and people start sharing around. And then now all this huge group of people now believe it.
1: (laughs) Well, and then, and then remember what I said, like, you know, three hours ago during one of my streams of stream of consciousness rants here. Um, you know, you got all the clickbait on the side of every or the bottom of every single website. And all that clickbait is probably, I mean, most of it is just celebrity nonsense, but a good percentage of it is going to be health and fitness information. And it's absolute nonsense, right? They'll show like a picture that's just some bizarre thing. You can't tell if it's like a facial tumor or a mushroom (laughs) Or some kind of prehistoric fish. You know, it's just like this lumpy, gross blob. And then it says, you know, doctors were shocked at, you know, that this did this click here. So you click on what doctors are shocked by. And again, how do you know that this, you know, that that any of this is true and not just made up? Well, if it's in the sponsored content section, of course it's made up. (laughs) Or at least you have to assume it's made up. But there must be a lot of people out there who don't think that way, who still kind of think in this magical way that, well, if this guy really has a way to, you know, make my facial tumors go away, or make my stomach, you know, my stomach fat go away, or make my goiter go away, you know, or give me whiter teeth without actually having to brush my teeth or floss, whatever whatever they're promising. If you wanted to believe it's true. You've kind of already crossed that threshold to where you may be susceptible to uh, to, to falling for a scam. So I don't know how you, I I, I don't know how you engineer that out of um out, out of the human thought process. And and I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm talking about you know anything that happens between the years is is you know so far beyond any any vague expertise i have so i'm just sort of guessing and going off some you know stuff that i've read and picked up on over the years but still we're really up against in in those of us who are in the information economy uh are are really up against foes that i i don't think we've ever had to face before you know so i mean this is this is really i don't want to say it's an existential threat because as long as there's educated people um we're going to have People who are looking for the for the real audience, but like I said, I think there's so much media that's chasing that um, that dis- that discriminating percentage of the audience um, that we're you know that that we're all sort of um, up against formidable odds.
0: So, would you say, as like a fitness industry as a whole, do you think we are failing the general public because they keep falling for stupid stuff like that all the time?
1: No, I I, I don't. I think that right now the fitness industry is still growing. We're still helping people. Um, You know, personal training is, I think it's still listed as one of the growing professions. I know, and I recently looked this up because of an article that was just published yesterday on on the best uh, gym chains. It's over at Mm -hmm. menshealth.com. So I was looking up all the, you know, went over all the statistics for the health club industry, and it's pretty healthy. You know, there's a lot of growth, especially in these uh, these budget gyms, where people are paying. um, I think a statistic that really caught caught my eye: forty one percent of health club members pay, I think, twenty five dollars a month or less. So there's a lot of people who are getting access to um, to at least the facilities where they can go in and make things happen for themselves, whether they actually do it. I I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are on, uh, you know, exercise participation and adherence. I think I get the impression it's been static for a while, but even with that, we find when you bury down into statistics, I think I, I haven't looked at this recently, but I think it's accurate to say, that among the best educated and most affluent segment of the population, exercise participation is as strong as ever, probably increasing. Tremendous amount of health consciousness. People are uh, deliberately, uh, you know, modifying their diets based on what the current consensus is of, of of what a healthy diet entails. So I think that among that discriminating part of the audience that I keep referring to. Um, you know, they're sold on what we do, and they're going to continue to uh, you know buy my books, read my articles, use your services, use you know the services of the of whatever trainers are, are listening to this. And so we have our you know we have our ecosystem. Can we reach the less affluent and less educated people? Um, that's a that's a huge question, and I honestly don't think anybody has the answer because when we're talking about, less affluent people in a lot of cases, we're talking about people who are just working two, three jobs and under tremendous, tremendous stress, 24 hours a day. How are they going to focus on the things that we talk about? How are they going to focus? You know, you're really, you're going to eat chicken breasts and broccoli after you've just, <laughs> you know, got commuted, you know, four hours. So you work eight hours at one job and three hours at another job and you're going to come home and collapse with for five hours of sleep and get up the next day and do it again. So what, you're going to give that person like a, like a, what, you're going to put them in CrossFit, you know, (laughs) you're you're going to, you're going to give that, you know, you're going to, you know, have that person go subscribe to Precision Nutrition and, you know, learn how to, you know, solve all their, you know, you know, develop a healthy diet and, you know, finally lose weight. No, you've got, you, when people are that stressed and I'm not, of course I'm not saying that everybody is, but that part of the population, which is the least healthy, uh, is always going to be the most challenging to reach. I think the way to reach that population is is through policy issues. That if I said what I really think out loud um, would probably make like half your listeners stop listening. For example, if I said a higher minimum wage would take some of the stress away from people like that, universal health care would take away a lot of their a lot of their stress. Um, it would certainly allow parents to have fewer sick days from work. It would allow kids to have fewer sick days from school. And, of course, if kids are having fewer sick days and parents are going to miss less work, which means that parents can focus on a career track, possibly continue their own education, their kids with better health, um, with their parents making a little bit more money and having steadier jobs, could probably focus a little bit better in school, get better educated. And then a generation from now, we people like us, selfishly, we have a bigger part of the audience. But when you talk about policy prescriptions like that, um, you know, there's there's like I said, half your audience has already stopped listening. And, uh, you know, the uh, you know, the other half is saying, well, tell me something I don't know. So we're we're you know, you can either preach to the choir or you can piss off people who don't want to hear your thoughts. And there's certainly smart people on the other side who have you know, who, who believe the opposite of what I've said. But my feeling about a lot of these things is we've already tried punishing poor people for being poor. Um, we've tried ridiculing them for being obese and being unhealthy and having bad teeth and having shitty schools and living in bad neighborhoods that are riddled with crime. Um, how about we already know that didn't work? So you know, maybe if we're serious about public health, let's try something else. Unfortunately, um, I don't think that's going to happen in in my lifetime based on recent trends. And you know, maybe possibly it will happen in your lifetime.
0: So, in your opinion, like what would you implement in, say, North America to kind of fight the obesity epidemic? Like, what steps would you put in place?
1: Um, well, I would never... If if you put me in charge of North America, the first thing I would do would be abdicate because I don't think anybody should have that kind of power. I, I firmly believe in democracy and, uh, and in a democratic process, and I think that these things have and flow. And sometimes I think positions like what I just said make more sense to more people and have a chance. Uh, and then there are other times where positions like that have no chance. And all I can say, you know, all I can guess is that for the next, you know, four years, possibly longer, um, you know, these things have no chance. What will happen after that? I don't know. You know, the thing about that is you have to have institutions and our institutions are fighting for their own survival, which is a bad situation because you don't want institutions to exist only to perpetuate themselves. You know, if we have institutions, they should exist to help, um, you know, to help someone else uh, other other than the, you know, other than the people who work there. So there's a lot of... Um, there, there's a lot of reasons for pessimism, and the reason for optimism is that I think when I look back to the way I grew up in the 1960s where virtually nobody worked out, um, where, where middle-aged parents, like especially the men, were just happily obese. They were proud of themselves. I can remember my dad and his friends comparing their bellies and laughing about it. <laughs> um, we've gone from that to... A time where I think everyone understands that there's nothing to be proud of if you're obese, and and this is aside from the genetics argument. I mean, I remember my you know my dad and his friends, they deliberately did that to themselves. You know, <laughs> so we're not talking about genetics. We're just talking about guys who were like, hey, I eat a lot of steaks and I drank a lot of beer, and look at me. And they're all like, ha, 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 yeah, boy, that's a pot belly, all right. And I can remember this specifically that guys, you know, that that my dad and his friends would joke about stuff like this. So we've gone from that to a time when virtually everyone knows that smoking is bad for you, that you should wear a seatbelt when you drive, your kids should stay in school. Um, The support isn't there for people. Uh, for a big part of the population, the resources aren't there right now. For a big part of the population, to um, exploit uh, the information that's out there to improve their own health in ways that would be beneficial to them, probably they'd like to do those things. I think they'd like to be able to join a gym and have an hour a day to work out and not have to worry about you know their their children starving because you know the twenty five dollars a month they're spending at Gold's Gym you know, is going to mean $25 less they have to spend on food. Um, so I, I, I think that we've won the argument, but we have not won the delivery system for the means to implementing the, uh, the, the, the changes that we've encouraged people to make. I hope that makes sense.
0: Oh, I did. Uh, I was going to bring it up because I watched a couple documentaries on Netflix about like the food industry in America. And one was uh, just showing like a middle school what they, you know, feed their kids for lunch. And depending on which day of the week, it was like burgers on Monday, pizza on Tuesday, fries and whatever you could think of. So these kids are kind of set up for failure and that and they think like that's that's OK, And then I watched another documentary with uh, Michael Moore. I think it was called uh, "Where to Invade Next." Yes, I uh, saw that one. Yeah, so I think he went to France or something like that to show how the kids there ate, and they had like so.
1: Yeah, I I, I saw that, and like you know that scene of these kids being served like a five course gourmet lunch on on uh, on China, you know, by professional chefs. Somehow, I don't think that's coming to um, South Central LA or the Bronx <laughs> no. or South Side of Chicago anytime soon. Just a guess.
0: Probably not, no. <laughs> yeah. But it was just uh, an- interesting to see how two countries can do something so differently. And I always wonder, like, at, w- at what point, like, where did the food industry decide in America, like, you're going to eat burgers and that's it. No matter what, we're not going to change it.
1: I don't see, I, I don't, I guess I don't really believe in monoliths. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's any industry that's so big that they can override public opinion, uh, or, or, or I don't think anybody can reverse the, um, you know, the, these, these really big, broader societal trends. It's the way the food industry responds to these things. Like, I, I know this is like the, like the biggest cliche now But when everyone decided, all the official people decided that low fat was a thing that we should aspire to, what do they, how do they respond? Snack wells, you know, so (laughs) we're just going to, we're just going to load everything up with sugar and the, uh, Nixon administration, you know, came out with these huge subsidies for corn producers, which Mm -hmm. led to, you know, this, this massive influx of, of, um, high fructose corn syrup. So you can't look at any single one of those things and say it destroyed health. But I think what you can look at is say that consistently we um, we I don't know maybe we jump the gun in thinking that we found a solution to to a, a, a really big endemic generational kind of problem. You know, when you talk, for example, when you're talking about kids in in middle school, the problem isn't really their lunches. The problem is that you still make them get up at 6, you know, at 5 or 6 in the morning and catch a bus when it's still dark outside and go to school when kids that age should be sleeping at least two hours more a night. So I think a lot (laughs) of problems get solved if you just say, why do these kids have to start school at 7.30 or 8.15 when they're in middle school and high school? Does that make any sense at all? Why? No, it doesn't. Why is it like that? Well, let me see. I guess because people used to have to go home and work on the farm before it got dark And then later is because sports teams wanted to practice outside while they still had daylight. But does that really, you know, considering what a small percentage of the population works on farms now. And the fact that for one thing, trackers have headlights now, you know, (laughs) so you can actually work after dark in your fields. Um, Or the fact that, you know, sports facilities for the most part have lights. So kids, you know, they can, they can practice under the lights. Um, we have solutions to these problems. The problem is that we also have this this huge inertia problem that we've got the entire education system is based on starting these kids, uh, you know forcing them to go to school when biologically their biological clocks you know still tell them they need two hours of sleep. So we're still doing these things backwards. It'd be great if we could also fix their lunches. but I think the bigger problem is let's <laughs> let, let, let's let's accommodate their uh, circadian rhythms and their biological clocks, and may, perhaps give them you know more nutritious food. So these are but these are two separate things that could happen in tandem if we had the will to do that, which right now, unfortunately, we don't. Yeah, I think in
0: that same documentary where it invade next, it was like Switzerland or somewhere like that where kids' schools were only. Like- five hours per day so yeah you got more sleep and they were more productive and they got to actually do the things they wanted to do compared to a North America
1: yeah sure and and you've got I think it's um what is it Norway or Finland that that has the like supposedly the best education system in the world and they give virtually no homework at least you know certainly Mm -hmm. to young kids um that would be great you know my kids it it, it, the growing up, uh, the youngest is now 16, the oldest is turns 21 in a few weeks. They they were tortured by all this nonsense homework they were given. It was ridiculous. On top of the fact <laughs> that by the time they got to be teenagers that they were chronically sleep deprived, um but you know, again, you've got you've got parents out there who are saying that um, we need, you know, that they, they want their kids to have more homework because if they're not getting homework. Then they feel that their kids aren't being pushed. So, or, or you can go to the flip side and you can look at these, you can look at Asian countries, you can look at, you know, Korea and, and, and Japan. And you see these kids working far longer hours at everything than kids in this country and going to cram schools. And, you know, when, uh, you know, after, after their regular school day is over. So you can find extremes everywhere Um, You know, unfortunately, we've got such a huge country, I think over 320 million people now, you know, spread across this, you know, this this vast landscape that's really like, you know, the equivalent of seven or eight countries all within one set of borders. Um, We're never going to get everybody to agree on anything. Unfortunately, we've kind of defaulted to since we're never going to agree, let's not do anything. And that seems to be where we have settled, at least for the time being.
0: It's basically like you're smashing your forehead in like a cinder block and that's how far you're going to get out the situation.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. I could either, I could either, you know, I, I, I could either give myself a concussion banging my head against a wall or I could just say, well, this is not, this is not the time that things are going to change, but let's at least be talking about this stuff so that when there's another opportunity to actually make some, you know, make, make some improvements, um, th- you know, to, uh, to public health, they'll be reasonable, they'll be doable. We can explain them well. We can, we can make them non-threatening to people who hate change, which is something that, uh, has been, has been a real, well, that's probably been the biggest challenge. Um, you know, since the beginning of, of, you know, Republican government is that people are scared of change. So, We've got to make this non scary. We've got to make it logical. We've got to build a consensus for it. And then we have to be willing to say, if we implement these things and they're not working, then we have to be willing to say, okay, this didn't work as well as we thought it would. Let's try something else. And unfortunately, by then, now there's an entrenched, then there becomes an entrenched interest group that says, no, 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 no. We fought for this. We're going to keep it exactly like it is. Or there's people who say, well, you know, let's just do away with public schools because it's clearly not working. And you say, no, 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 that's insane. Um, so, you know, you, you've got to um, sometimes the best you can do is hold on to something that that's not working as well as it should, because taking it apart would be a far worse. Uh, dismantling it would be a far worse um, solution. It would, actually wouldn't be a solution. It would be, you know, about one of the most consequential mistakes you could make. So there's no one answer except that those of us who care just have to keep, I think, making the argument for better solutions to endemic problems and at least change the consensus, as we have done with health and fitness and nutrition throughout my lifetime. Like I said, I remember the first seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> I You know, I remember where drinking and driving wasn't against the law, it was considered an essential skill set for everyone, (laughs) you know, from the age of 16 on up. Um, I can remember when, uh, if you turned to somebody who was smoking in a public place and said, could you please blow your smoke the other direction? You might find yourself in a fist fight because that was considered an insult. They had no idea why you'd want their goddamn smoke in your goddamn lungs. So um, this is my, you know, this has all happened in my lifetime to where these things that uh, were, you know, the consensus. I mean, for example, in World War II, the children, and I believe this is true, I, I'm working off deep memory here, the children of tobacco growers were actually exempt from military service because growing tobacco and providing it to soldiers was considered an essential part of the war effort. So we, or maybe that was World War One. I. I, I don't remember which, I think it was World War II. But we've gone from that to... Um, you know, basically, if you're if you're a smoker, uh, not only can you not blow smoke in anyone else's face, you're considered a, a you know a pretty vile individual if you even do it in your house when you have children. So we've come a very long way on some really substantial issues, and the fact that we haven't gone all the way um, isn't cause it, it's cause for concern, but probably not cause for despair. And that's absolutely the most optimistic thing I have said since mid-November. Okay. Uh, so, do
0: you mention any of this stuff, like in your new book that you're writing with uh, Dr. Spencer Nadalski with
1: the diabetes crisis in North America? <laughs> no. <laughs> no? no, I don't. I don't talk about any of this stuff. I, you know, this is—it's it, only because I'm dead tired and I haven't slept well the last few nights. Um, winter is hell on my sinuses. Okay. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's only—it's only because of that. That I'm even, you know, brain dead enough to be talking about this stuff that I will never <laughs> talk about to a fitness audience. Yeah. Because, like I said, it just turns off half the audience. Nobody wants, you know, that half doesn't want to hear it. So, no. What we talk about in the book is, uh, you know, this is this is different for me because most of my books have they're beginner friendly, but they're really targeted to that advanced beginner, intermediate who just has enough experience to know what doesn't work for them. And we say, okay, you've tried all this other stuff. You've tried all the magic solutions. You've tried all the, you know, you're the muscle magazines. You've found all this information online and you tried to put it together. It didn't work for you. Here's what will actually work. And if we can get their attention long enough and get them to get into this program and see that it's working and then stay with the program. So that's been my, you know, that's been my wheelhouse with this diabetes book. Um, Dr. Nadolsky and I, Spencer and I, are are writing for an audience that is older, more female, uh, more likely to be sedentary, more likely to not fully understand what a healthy diet is, Um, certainly doesn't understand how they got to the point where they have to make these radical changes, that they have this disease, um, that they have to eat less food, get more exercise, or they're going to have to take these really powerful drugs that will eventually have a very debilitating effect on their health. If they take charge of their health, they can control these things. If they don't take charge of their health, everything is going to get worse. So that's a that was a new argument. I'd never had to make that before. I hope we did it effectively. But literally in this book, what we do is we tell people how to exercise from step one. We tell them, okay, now get out of your chair, stand up, now sit down again. Guess what you just did? You exercised. You got up from your chair and you sat back down again. That's a squat. And then, we, uh, then the next sentence is, you know, okay, now get up from your chair again. And this time walk across the room, walk back, sit back down again. Now you'd only exercised. You did more exercise. You're, you're getting better. So making the argument for a daily walk and for doing just a little bit uh, was, was new to me. And I hope we approach it in a logical way. Uh, same with nutrition. Let's start with okay. We're not going to drink two liters of soda a day. We're not going to drink a six pack beer tonight. Okay. So we we you know we we start there with things that your audience, uh, my readers, would already know, and then we go from there to somewhat more. Um, I don't want to say advanced. But certainly, slightly more sophisticated information about here's how you know here here's here's how you put together a fitness program that can work for you. Here's how to build in progressions. Here's how to here's how to go you know we're going to go a little bit faster. We're going to go a little bit longer. Showing them how to do um, you know how to how to not necessarily how to periodize, but certainly how to make progressions. How to go farther than they have before. How to get more out of the workouts they have, and whatever time they have to devote to this, and then the same with diet. You know how to how to program, uh, how, how to plan it, how to limit the carbs in a way, excuse me, that 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 can easily work with um, that person's lifestyle. Um, how to work with your doctor so that you know you're you're like managing the combination of your drugs and the diet you're on because if you're taking a certain amount of insulin and all of a sudden you go on the super low carb diet or all of a sudden you start exercising and draining glycogen out of your, out of your muscle cells, you know, there's, there's a, there's a real chance that there's going to be a consequence of that. So all these things have to work in synergy in consultation with the doctor. Like I said, all that was new to me. Um, I hope it's, you know, I, I hope it's logical and, and valuable for the readers. Um, and then, you know, selfishly, if all that works for them, then maybe they'll graduate to reading, you know, my other books in the Rules of the Lifting series or the Lean Muscle Diet, which I wrote with Alan Aragon. And of course, you know, Spencer has has other books and products and training services and all these things. So, um, you know, maybe we're creating a future market for ourselves and for you. Um, but in the, you know, in the in the short term, I just hope the people who need help will pick up the book and and you know, this will give them the first steps toward you know improving their. Uh, their 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 diet and their lifestyle and their overall health, I hope.
0: yeah, I was uh, super pumped to hear that you're gonna work with Spencer because like I've been following him on Facebook for a while now, and he's so good on posting something at least every single day. and the fact that he has, you know the doctor in front of his name, people are gonna pay a little bit more attention to what he has to say. And then I think maybe a couple weeks ago he promoted that he'll be taking patients online. I yeah. thought that was kind of cool to kind of see that, you know, medical field kind of progress into that direction just so he can take on more
1: patients. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and Spencer is, you know, he, he, we're talking about a guy who is just smart as hell, you know, academic all American in, in high, in, in college, um, national honor society in high school, you know, he was an all state athlete in high school. He was, you know, um, you know, at the, at the highest competitive level of uh, collegiate wrestling, at one point he told me he was ranked he was ranked fifth in the country as a heavyweight when he was a senior at North wow. Carolina. So we're talking about a guy who is a great athlete and a super smart guy, and yet his career is focused on working with people who um, I'm not saying they're they're not smart, but in terms of you know uh, sports and fitness and interests in health and nutrition, completely opposite him. And that's, his, and that's his career track. So he's a fascinating guy, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Um, and, of course, you know, I think it goes without saying I really enjoyed working with him.
0: So now after writing, like, several books on training and nutrition, what is kind of, like, the common theme that you kind of keep going back to to make sure everyone kind of understands that this is, like, really important?
1: Well, I, I think all the arguments that I had to make I've I've made. So whatever whatever I do next, I, I don't I don't even know that it's building on on that because I think that each of the new rules of lifting books or or most of them had programs that last, you know, six to nine to possibly twelve months and that and that readers could repeat. So once a reader say goes through like the new rules of lifting supercharged or our our new book strong goes through all those nine or 10 stages two times taking a year and a half to two years, that person is probably going to be ready to move on to something else. And a lot of people will go on and, you know, get into powerlifting or, or, you know, some other, you know, maybe they'll get into like, um, you know, like adventure racing or obstacle course racing or something like that. But they, you know, if they want to keep pushing themselves, they'll find ways to do that. Um, If they want to keep doing the kind of things that we talk about, uh, that's great. You know, we've got enough programs in our books to keep people going for probably 10 years just in the six new rules of lifting books. So um, I I kind of feel that that audience has as much material as it needs or, or has demanded. So I'm kind of on the lookout for what audiences is underserved. At at this point, that you know, maybe they need exactly what I have to offer. Uh, I don't know exactly what that is yet, but Mm -hmm. that's you know, I'm on the prowl.
0: Perfect. Um, Well, I was going to ask you next is like when you decided to write the new rules of lifting for women. What made you kind of want to jump on the population of just women? And did you ever feel like giving advice to women, even though you're a male, was kind of like you didn't want to cross too many borders or you kind of played it safe, like? What was your whole thought process in that regard?
1: Well, I never thought about jumping on anybody. <laughs> um, just, just to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I love my wife. We've been married 23 years. Um, not going into any of this with the idea of being able to jump on anybody. So uh, what happened was we wrote a book, Alan Cosgrove and I wrote a book called The New Rules of Lifting, which, you know, because I'd been an editor at these men's magazines and because I'd. You know, been working out in you know commercial health clubs since 1980, um, and saw the difference between how men and women worked out. I just assumed that men would be the only audience interested in this book about getting back to you know basic, you know the basics of strength training. Um, the practically the minute the book came out, I started hearing from women. Uh, certainly, I did radio interviews with a couple of uh, female. Um, uh, uh, talk show hosts who were saying, why did you write this book for men? What's it? What, what about women? And my answer consistently was, I had no idea that women would be interested in this. It was no secret in the strength and conditioning field back then in 2006, that male athletes and female athletes should train pretty much the same way. I mean, there's obviously going to be some differences Certainly, you know differences in 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 body composition and in the way that muscle mass is distributed. But a muscle fiber is a muscle fiber. Um, so, if I, I would have thought that a female audience would be interested, um, I would have done I would have done it sooner. As it happened, I think our timing was exactly right. The book came out in two thousand eight, and I think it caught the audience at exactly the moment. When women were realizing that there was more to there was more to fitness, and certainly more to training than what they'd been doing and what they'd been handed in their in their uh, you know you know what 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 they were being given in given in the you know in in group exercise classes and what personal trainers were having them do and what their magazines were telling them to do, they were making them scared of heavy weights. Um, you know, you look at the pictures back then. Uh, in, the, in the women's fitness magazines, you would see these models who were like six foot tall and maybe 110, 120 pounds with these just bizarre proportions. And they would have them with like, you know, doing a deadlift with 55 pounds using a mixed grip and like half a range of motion. And you would look at that and you would go, this this was what they were being told was strength training. And then they were being promised all these outrageous benefits that they were going to, you know, they're, oh, you can avoid osteoporosis and build, you know, and increase your metabolism. And they kept trying to go around in circles around the idea that the purpose of strength training is to get stronger. So we wrote a book telling women that the purpose of strength training was to get stronger. And I would say that 99% of the audience appreciated the information and didn't bother him at all that this was coming from a male audience. In fact, the original title of the book was Lift Like a Man, Look Like a Goddess, which later became the, uh, the subhead when we wisely decided to call it New Rules of Lifting for Women. But occasionally there have been some who, you know, have, have ripped me for presuming to tell women this or that. But, you know, if you could transport yourself back in time to 2006 when we started working on that book, it was extremely hard to find any of this information targeted to women. It was all telling them to do the opposite, you know, to lift the light weights, to not get bulky, to, you know, be afraid of heavy things, um, telling them they could get all the benefits of strength training without actually getting stronger. So, you know, you got to kind of judge. I, I hope that people are smart enough to judge if they think that it's weird that guys are writing strength training books for women, I hope that they would stop and think about the context of when we launched the project. I don't expect people to do that, but some of the people who have ripped me clearly either have no memory of what life was like back in 2006 or even 2008 when the book came out. But, you know, I would hope that they would, you know, at least slow down a little bit and think about, why did this book become so popular despite the fact it was written for guys? If a couple of women had come around, come along and written the exact same book at the exact same time, possibly nobody would have paid any attention to ours at all, but they didn't. So, you know, we did our part.
0: And I think uh, strength training for women is kind of now progressing in the right direction. Cause like you look at someone like Ben Bruno and he's posting videos of him training like Kate Upton and a couple of Victoria's Secret models and they're like, paper thin, but they're pushing sleds with, like, 500 pounds on them, and lo and behold, they're not turning into the Hulk that most women think that's going to happen.
1: Well, you notice, though, um, and Ben told me this. We had breakfast a couple months ago um, out in L.A. Uh, You you notice he doesn't have videos of them doing upper body training, Mm -hmm. right? So (laughs) they still have to be really skinny.
0: Yeah. 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 It's like just the sled and hip thrust over and over again.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, he, he's, he's a, he's a terrific trainer, smart guy, uh, you know, puts a lot of great information out there. Um, but you know, he, he understands that these supermodels, if they, you know, if their shoulders get bigger, if their lats get bigger, you know, if their upper arms get bigger, then they're out of the fashion modeling business, yeah. which, you know, uh, means that he's out of, you know, he's which means he loses the client. <laughs>
0: Definitely. Uh, so last question, because we're already at an hour. Um, what are the next kind of projects that you're doing? Are you doing any like speaking engagements and where can people find you online?
1: Well, um, if people struggle to find me online, I got to say, I, I have a dim view of your audience. So <laughs> <laughs> as long as they, yeah, I mean, as long as they know how to spell my name, I, I'm at louschuler.com, new rules, the new rules of lifting.com. I'm all over Facebook uh Twitter. Um in theory I have an Instagram page and I've got like, I don't know, three, four, five hundred followers, but I think they're all bots. Um <laughs> because I've never posted anything there. Uh you know, my my books are available wherever books are sold online or off. Um I write for uh, mainly for Men's Health magazine and men's health.com. So you could go to menshealth.com and you know find all my stuff you know, just search for my name and click on my byline and it'll give you a chronological order of every article they've posted of mine. So I'm pretty, you know, pretty easy to find. Uh, My next speaking engagement is the uh, IMC, the annual fitness summit in Kansas City. This year, it's first weekend of May, May, uh, I think it's five and six. So we've always got a terrific lineup of speakers, Alan Aragon, Brett Contreras, uh, both coming back this year. Um, Dave Delanavi is going to be speaking, uh, terrific uh, power lifter, very smart guy. Uh, lots of, you know, Kelly Coffey, who's a female fitness pro um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, has a, has a, just d- does, a, does amazing things and has, has an amazing backstory. So we've got this great lineup of speakers. Uh, the summit is a really fun time every year. So if any of your audience is either in the Kansas City area or can arrange to get there the first weekend in May, uh, I highly recommend that. That's one of the best, I, I think one of the best, it's the best fitness industry event I've ever been to, but I don't get invited to that many. So, you know, my frame of reference may be limited, but it is, uh, it's a lot of fun and there's a lot of great information.
0: Awesome. So I just want to thank you for all your time that you gave us today and this
1: is great. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it.
0: All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 29 with Lou Schuler. Again, he was amazing. One of my biggest idols when it comes to this uh, fitness industry. So, again, if you have any questions for him or you want to look him up, louschuller.com, that's all you got to do. And, again, just reminding you guys to go check out my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash cut the shit, get fit. Please support me and I'll continue giving you awesome content. Till next time.